Hello and welcome to DigFinVox, Voices in Digital Finance. I'm your host, James DiBiazio. If you enjoy the program, give us a like, subscribe, check out digfingroup.com. With Asia leading adoption of so many payment methods, where does this leave the traditional players who got their bread and butter off of credit cards? To answer this question, I spoke today with Ari Sarker, president for Asia Pacific at MasterCard. Ari Sarkar, welcome to DigFinVox. Well, delighted to be here, Jane. And it's great, great to have you. Uh, you are sitting on top of a giant machine in the payments and technology space, running APAC for MasterCard. Uh, and it's been a very choppy year, as everybody knows. Uh, what does that kind of market volatility and uncertainty look like from MasterCard's point of view? And how are you helping your, your clients get through this? Uh, well, James, I think uh, the volatility is, uh, is, is real. And, and if I may just add that a lot of the volatility or, or what I call the concern is coming out of Europe. And if I can quite honestly say that the media attention on the challenges out of Europe is kind of bleeding into Asia. Asia is actually in a much better place than what, what the world would possibly consider. <clears throat> if you look at just the MasterCard story and what we are seeing just across the landscape, 2022 has seen a very strong consumer rebound story. And just across the board, the consumer is still very strong and resilient in Asia Pacific. And what has that shown? It has shown uh, revenge spending on travel. It has clearly shown on recreation, dining. As Asia has opened up, you've seen domestic economies uh, is, 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 is very much alive where consumer spending is come back at a fairly aggressive pace. Uh, I would argue, uh, James, that the inbound cross-border travel into Asia is still uh, three-fourths of what it has been in 2019, if you index 2019 uh, to current performance. But the outbound story out of Asia, despite North Asia being pretty significantly closed, is already at 2019 and above levels. Now, there's also a bit of inflation in airline ticket prices and hotel prices and what oh, have you. Oh, I know, yes. <laughs> we all know, right? Yeah. And, and uh, you need a bank loan to buy an airline ticket. But you know, that said, uh, we think that the momentum will continue to remain fairly healthy. I think the inflationary pressures that we've seen, despite very high aggressive, what I call travel-related inflation, we think it'll moderate into the first quarter of next year because most of the large carriers are adding significant capacity uh, and bringing it back to almost like 2019 levels. So I'm actually pretty confident that the travel inflation is going to see a downer going into next year, uh, which should take a few percentage, you know, hopefully help the inflation rate in Asia uh, in, in, in 2023. So overall, I'm very positive, uh, James. Uh, you know, this is not a, a negative story in any way. Bank balance sheets clean, consumers are healthy, employment levels are good, GDP forecast across Asia is down probably about a percentage point. Um, and inflation rates, if you look country to country, you know, you're seeing trending in that six to seven percent range. Keep this in mind that Asia in general, if you take the last five, seven years as an aberration and look at the last 40, 50 years, Asia in general has been a medium inflation uh, economy, and that has also fueled growth over the last many decades. So I think it's less of a challenge as, as the immediate lens uh, that we are using, 
Now, if, if Europe goes into a tailspin or China really slows down and the US has a tougher time, uh, then obviously we will have to recalibrate this position. But at the current time, uh, not a massive concern. Uh, I, I, that would be my assessment, uh, James. Yeah. So in the payments world, maybe we take that that basically good news outlook and, and think about that. So your classic business would have been the credit cards and, and still is, right? That's still, I assume, the, 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 the biggest engine in your, in your machine. Um, and that would be for people that are already quite affluent, uh, people who can afford to travel, um, you, you know, wealthy segments uh, across the region. Is it the same thing for people that are in your, you know, maybe the newer business segments that are perhaps where you're trying to service them through digital wallets or QR codes or or uh, other new means of of payment methods? Are they having the same experience? James, it's a great question. And again, uh, you know, most people think the legacy of of networks like Mastercard has been, in essence, credit card companies, so to speak. But if you really look at our book of business. In the last decade plus, I'd say last 10 to 15 years, debit, which in essence is not credit, but money that is lying in our respective bank accounts has become an equally big vector for growth uh, for us um, in, in the payment network. So if you look at the book of business, yes, credit is a very vibrant part of the overall mix, but debit is a very significant part of flows. And therefore why I'm saying that is spending money that you already have in cross-border sense, in e-commerce, that is also very much part of the consumer spending journey. Now you talk about wallets and Asia is very unique in that sense. When you compare it to Europe or North America, uh, wallet containers, and I use the term containers, is where you store money and wallet is another way of uh, a term that, you know, a physical wallet has gone into a digital wallet. And accounts. Those, uh, accounts, in essence. Uh, you know, that's about a third of accounts in the APAC region. And if you think of that, that's a fairly large size of where wallets are. And, and we are seeing a lot of spending on wallets across ASEAN, across India and places. However, you also have a lot of what I call domestic payment infrastructure that has come in in real-time payments. And yeah. that has seen a very prolific shift towards digital. And therefore the shift towards from cash to digital economies has only got another step up during COVID, and, and that is only good for overall formalization of very large parts of Asia, which is still informal economy. So my view is the wallets are there, uh, our containers of bank accounts are also being provided as a capability. And what roles like network like ours does, you know, we partner with the wallets. Uh, if you think about it, uh, James, we've got about, you know, 3 billion consumers on one end, and this is a global number. And then you've got about 100 million merchants on the other end. The wallets are also keen to partner with us because we are the funding source into funds into the wallet, or in some cases, as you see the Apple, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the Apple Pay proposition or Google Pay proposition or Android Pay, you know, we are also enabling pass through of our credentials. And therefore, you know, we are using this term credentials going forward. It's no longer the plastic. It's the intelligence that has resided for the last 40 to 50 years in a piece of plastic is now residing in devices, in, in, in your mobile device, in your wearables, and in your wallets. So you'll be able to load your intelligence and, and tokenize, as we call the industry term, you tokenize the credentials into any container or wallet or account that allows you to either fund uh, another account, which is a wallet account, 
or as many wallets do, they allow you to pass through your credentials to enjoy a seamless you know, payment experience. So more the better, uh, James. I think that would be the, the point that I'd make. And, and it's only, only fueling the digitization adoption across Asia for the benefit of, of larger society. Obviously, you're, 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 you're in that game. Uh, how does that competition landscape look compared to the traditional model? You've got fintechs, you've got digital banks, um, you've got just a lot of um, digital platforms, uh, whether it's consumer or SME that are servicing this. Uh, it, it feels very crowded, maybe overcrowded, um, but they have touch points that maybe you don't have. So how, how does this work for you? Well, it's a great question, Jabe. I think they clearly have touch points that we don't touch. You know, if you look at a lot of what these digital fintech players have built or payment facilitators have done, they've actually massively expanded acceptance and merchant acceptance, acceptance into new verticals, acceptance into much lower level verticals where, you know, a, a traditional payment terminal is too expensive. You've seen the proliferation of QR payments that have kind of happened in Asia. Although in the initial period, they all happened in kind of closed loop environments. Alipay has built their own. WeChat has built their own. Uh, but you also have the likes of Gcash in Philippines. You have PayMaya in Philippines. You have Paytm building out a certain uh, uh, scale of acceptance. At the same time, what networks like us are able to bring to the table is while these closed loop acceptance have been built, why not create interoperability where everybody gets to enjoy a seamless user experience? And I think that is the journey that we are on. And therefore, what seems on surface as direct competition are actually enablers of growing the digital economy and therefore our ability to create what we call collaboration partnerships towards shared open loop acceptance environments becomes even more compelling. Now, in terms of propositions, you know, the, the, the beauty of what digital is doing, smart devices, smart mobile devices, there's a lot more intelligence in those devices. So you talked about SME. SMEs are seeing a massive rise in the ability to get what I call software as a service propositions, where you can get bill payment, you can get invoicing, inventory management, and a lot of these capabilities now delivered at a fraction of a price, which is on a paper use type model. And frankly, that is you know, hugely important for even networks like ours, because formalization of the economy uh, should lead to uh, you know, nobody gets excited about saying, okay, I'm going to bring in all my transactions into the formal economy and pay more taxes. You know, that's not a great proposition for small business if you look at the Asian story, right? However, if you say that, you know, formalization of the economy leads to you getting access to capital because the data and, and the working capital cycle that you will be able to demonstrably show to financiers and other fintech and digital banks makes you a credible target to receive financing for business growth. Uh, <clears throat> I honestly feel that is going to be the big vector for growth. Access to capital, access to getting paid, access to making payments, and the, and the, uh, and the data that comes with it, which is really going to power uh, financial services and ability to create lending uh, services, which many of the so-called digi banks and others are prioritized. SMEs have been called out, James, by many of these digi banks to say that that's a big focus areas because it is believed that large banks have not serviced them well. Correct. And, yeah. and therefore, you know, digitization can only lead to more services. We're seeing in the region 
you know, maybe just call it a leapfrog, a, a new type of digital payments and financial infrastructure that's uh, being built hand in hand with the digital economy at large. Uh, and, you know, this financial inclusion play is fundamental to what's happening in many markets, India, Indonesia, Thailand, Philippines, you name it. Um, and at the same time, you've got some traditional uh, infrastructure here, whereas in the West, they seem to be really just, you know, they built this amazing uh, marketplace, and but not, not that much has changed, uh, maybe on the margins. What do you see going down the road with a different kind of digital infrastructure here in Asia that's built for really different reasons and different purposes? What's that going to look like? And what will that mean for uh, for global companies like you? Well, I think, I think, James, Asia is running at a really fast pace on the innovation curve. And, and I think this is, 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 uh, is making us raise our game itself, right? Because, you know, if you look at the last 40, 50 years, innovation was a Western-centric model. You do well in the US, you do well in Europe, you bring it to Asia, you sell the product. I think that is dramatically changing. As far as digital economies are concerned, in more ways than one, Asia is leading in the forefront. And therefore, our ability to adapt to what Asia is leading, and I'm going to give you just one such example. Digital technology will have a very profound impact in the lower stratas of society as you look at what technology can do to build a more inclusive society. So MasterCard has built this, 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 this platform. It's called the Farm Pass platform, where we're actually digitizing farmers' flows. You know, we're onboarding farmers. They get to source inputs and then they got a marketplace to sell their produce. Uh, it's, um, it's something that we rolled out in Africa to India. And we've got about 2 million farmers on the platform today. Half a million of them are based in India. We're expanding the geographic coverage. We're going to bring it to ASEAN. This has got to have a massively transformative effect in what I call the, the, the so-called not so fortunate segments of society. But technology is enabling you to service those very small ticket account balance plays, which in the traditional brick and mortar business, you just didn't have the economics to make it work. I think technology will be a very powerful enabler where bottom of the pyramid, access to capital, uh, you know, the, the, the microfinance industry is going to benefit from it. And, and again, it comes back to your ability to bring data science at scale. Uh, to be able to help, uh, you know, some of the micro SMEs and 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 the rural economies. You know, at some estimate, just to use India as an estimate, the credit gap is like four to five hundred billion dollars at bottom of the pyramid. Now, if you had like a hundred billion of that credit gap plugged, uh, economists estimate about hundred to hundred and fifty bips of overall GDP growth for a country. So it's an enormous enabler uh, for greater inclusive growth and reduce. What may what many may call uh, the greater the digital divide and 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 creating this income disparity uh, that has kind of widened, I would argue, in the last decade or so. And it also sounds like that if you narrow that digital divide within a society, then you're creating much more of a domestic strength of internal growth. Therefore, if you are a Southeast Asian traditional country where you are very much a free trade uh, type of economy. You are very exposed to risks of deglobalization, U.S.-China tensions. But the big, the more you can build up your own digital capacity for your people, the less dependent you are on on that uh, international side. 
That's very true, James, and, and, and you're going to see a lot more of that. While I think there is a trend on deglobalization, de uh, on a longer term, I just feel that the world has got too much knitted together, that these are all little blips that we will see in, 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 in the curve of globalization. Uh, I think there's enough room for cooperation. Uh, countries are looking for assistance in a number of fronts. Uh, on the analytics front, on AI front, and that should continue to lead to much greater levels of engagement. But deglobalization for a global company, nonetheless, is a risk. Uh, and we are seeing, uh, obviously, supply chains are beginning to shift, and obviously the political environment is not the best. So um, what, what, how do you manage that, and where are the fault lines that you have to be careful about? Well, I think one of the things that, you know, we have obviously learned this over the years, uh, James, is be very clear about solving real domestic market challenges and needs. Nobody really wants to hear about, you know, what you did in America, or what you did somewhere else. Everybody has, uh, and if you're trying to be domestically relevant in a country, solve a domestic problem uh, or create a domestic opportunity. And in that front, I think if you're able to do that, and if it's the agenda that you're solving is both relevant politically as well as economically, then those bubble up in the engagement strata. And I think that is the exercise that we are going through. A lot of what we are doing is trying to strike local partnerships, uh, local collaborations. We will even consider joint ventures. You know, we've got our entry into China, which is going to domestic market of China, which will be through a joint venture with a, with a local partner. Uh, we are exploring few other options across ASEAN uh, to seek greater domestic relevance. Uh, I, I think the partnership, collaboration, and shared goals, if we can bring that to bear, uh, I think will lead to greater success in a world where there is actually, you, as you rightly pointed out, greater deglobalization headwinds uh, for us to deal with. In the classic four-pillar model of payments, Ari, so you've got obviously the uh, a consumer, a merchant, a consumer issuing bank, the acquirer bank, and then someone like MasterCard in the middle uh, making it all happen. Um, we're seeing uh, the fintech revolution uh, in the U.S., let's say, began really on that acquirer space. And now in this region, we're seeing some of the big banks uh, coming back into acquiring. Uh, where is What does this say about where the, the revenue is going to be made now or where you see the sharp end of competition moving? Well, you know, I think, James, it's great to see banks are coming back in, but, you know, banks have traditionally been large acquirers in Asia-Pacific, more than even most other places. If you look at most markets, there's a concept called honest volumes, which means that both the issuer and acquirer is the same entity. It's generally been in the 40-plus percent type of range, and in some markets of ASEAN, it's even higher. Now, what you're finding is that when banks play the acquiring space aggressively, they are in many ways better than just a fintech player that is only providing some new creative solution, which is most definitely valued by stratas of the merchant community, which did not get that service from, from the banks. But the banks also bring lending capacity. The banks bring the ability to provide short-term financing, and therefore those are working capital financing. That is a natural advantage of a bank. But that's not to say fintech bank collaborating together is also a phenomena that we would have seen in the in the APAC region. You know, you've got fintechs like Pine Labs that provide installment payment capability, but they do that in partnership with banks who are also acquirers. And therefore, there are elements in the value chain that if can be combined together, where parties play to their strengths, 
can actually lead to a win-win for both sides. And you know, networks like MasterCard are always enabling new acquirers. You know, we always believe that the more that you can create a digital universe where consumers and businesses and small merchants and, and, and small businesses can actually have access to making payment opportunities, even though enabled through fintech players, if it's done in the open loop environment, we welcome that because that just means the more holistic journey and experience for users. Another big change is, let's say a year ago, if you and I had this conversation, um, I might have been saying, Ari, um, you're going to get killed by buy now, pay later. Uh, you're going to get killed by crypto. Um, and uh, these aren't things that you're you're good at or they're not your your core business. And and oh, my goodness, it's 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 uh, going to look tough now today. Uh, maybe interest rates are changing this, but buy now, pay later is the business model isn't looking very good. There's been a lot of pain in that section. Uh, crypto is uh, is doing crypto, which is to say it's uh, it's a little bit crazy out there. Um, so how do you look at these and how do you look at new technologies, not just flavor of the month, but um, position yourself to be able to to work within these new capacities in a way that's, you know, longer term, you know, with a view? Uh, James, uh, all innovation is always welcome. You know, the, the buy now, pay later thing or crypto uh, on a lighter note, you know, buy now, pay later is just a fancy term that people in Silicon Valley or somewhere have kind of coined. When if you think about it, it is what credit cards have traditionally done. You are buying now and you're paying later. Now, what they've done is they've now made the pay later into multiple installments and they've given it a very fancy term. If you look at what has happened in the buy now, pay later space is is what banks have been always wary of. And that is a complete explosion of the poor credit quality that they have underwritten. And you know those basic principles don't go away. Innovation and all this is great, but the core fundamental principles of risk management and risk underwriting, those are things that, you know we say that in every boom bust cycle, that where were the basic principles of doing business? You know, it's the Warren Buffett line that, you know, do you really know how you're making money and are you aware of where you're and how you're managing risk? I think those are principles that sometimes in the urge to show massive uh, you know, shift in growth and that's driven through purely pressure of valuation uh, and, and the wrong metric is getting maximized as opposed to a, a sustainable business model growth, I think is the, is the nature why buy now, pay later has kind of failed. But the technology advancement of being able to split a payment into five or six or 10 different installment plays. Therefore, unlike a credit card, if you miss a payment or credit, uh, if you miss paying down the entire credit amount, you'll get charged an APR on the whole amount, I think is a very interesting technological innovation that has happened. But it has kind of debunked the risk management that needed to go with it, and which is why it's kind of come a cropper. But I do believe that once the dust settles, the, the, the proposition is a powerful one. It is more a case of how people have gone about executing uh, on the model. And crypto, quite honestly, you know, we're looking at a world whether we get to Web 3.0 or Web 2.5. I think the debate is somewhere in there. But we are clearly moving to some elements of a decentralized world where, call it crypto, call it digital currency, stable coins, will be relevant uh, methods of exchanging value. Um, crypto is again, you know, is, is at a very nascent stage of growth and development. As with any industry, you will go through this boom bust cycle. We're going through the bust cycle. I think rationality will return. The exchanges are blowing up. If you, uh, I'm sure, James, you've got stock brokerage accounts. 
the stock exchange never keeps your 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 stock it's it's held as in custody with a financial institution or an institution that is regulated so i think there are questions around identity there are questions around custody of crypto assets or whether that should lie independent of exchanges i honestly feel a lot of this is going to get debated discussed and regulated in the coming years taxation has come in as a way to get transparency in crypto transactions india has, is as led that front uh, you will see more countries follow uh, so i i remain you know this isn't a case of 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 you know a boom bust cycle that is going to see an end but a boom bust cycle that's only allowing all of us to learn from it and hopefully develop uh, the risks and controls that are needed to make this a much more sustainable play last question for you ari and thank you again for your time since digfin's all about digital finance um what is the most exciting uh piece of the digital or the tech uh that's in your view for 2023 what do you think will be the something that can move the needle for for you and for the industry well you know i think uh, we are very excited about uh, continuing to create greater safety and security of the consumer journey together with eliminating friction in both consumer and business journeys so therefore tokenization as a standard for e-commerce is something that is getting aggressively pushed in many markets india's absolutely been a knockout success driven through the regulator which is now making sure that whether it's online or card on file which is where you stored your card credentials you're no longer going to be able to store your your real credentials but a authenticated token is going to enable much higher order of safety and security so i think uh, james i'm really excited that if we can build towards a, a digital economy and a digital consumer journey with higher orders of safety and security both at the user level as well as at the network level with ai and other tools which helps to enforce better anti money laundering capability or finding money laundering plays i think will become will make the overall environment a lot safer and therefore continue to foster and build trust which is going to be so critical as we continue to scale absolutely ari sarker thank you so much for your time today thanks for coming on digfin vox and uh, it sounds like we are all going to have a prosperous and busy 2023 Thank you Jay and a delight to spend time with you uh, today. Thank you.